0: Destruction Directive. 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 Directive Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And we've got a really good show today. I'd like to thank everyone, of course, for downloading our previous episode, where we took a look at Deep Sea Monster Rago, the independent da- Daikaiju film, finally getting wide release here in the States. And Marvel's The Thing number 31, featuring Devil Dinosaur the movie. This time out, it's the first of the Godzilla anime trilogy. It was Godzilla Planet of the Monsters finally getting an opportunity here in the spotlight on Earth Destruction Directive. And we also have Solo Avengers number 15 featuring the Winsome Wasp taking on Red Ronin. So we've got a Very good episode for you today, and can't wait to get into that. But up first, let's go over the news. So, Arrow Video has announced and put up for pre-order their long-rumored and discussed Gamera box set. The set is called Gamera The Complete Collection. contains all 12 Gamera films from the original 1965 film all the way through Gamera The Brave from 2006. Now, beyond the regular Blu-ray treatment, the Heisei Trilogy are actually going to be 4K restorations, which is uh, that, that's that's some big news because those are some great looking movies. Can't wait to see those in 4K. Uh, in addition to the movies, the set is also slated to include a hardcover collection of the State era Dark Horse comic book series, which I've never seen a single issue of, uh, plus the never before published English uh, comic The Last Hope, which uh, that was I want to say that was around the time of like um, uh, Advent of, not Advent of Pligian, um, um Awakening of Iris, so towards the end of that uh, era, the Heisei era. Additionally, there's also going to be another book, a uh, 80-page retrospective on the series, which is new for this set. Uh, the info that Arrow has released also specifically calls out that this is the Blu-ray debut of Gamera the Invincible, the U.S. version of the original film. This, of course, begs the question, will it feature the other U.S. releases as well? No word on that as of yet, so we'll have to wait and see. Release date is this summer, uh, July 28th, 2020, uh, here in the United States. The list priced on Amazon is $179.95. It's also available on DiabolicDVD.com. That's Diabolic, like the Italian comics character with a K. Uh, this looks to be the gamma answer to that Criterion Godzilla set for last year. And, uh, you know, just in case you were doubting that we are in fact living in a Daikaiju media golden age, there you go. Uh, in in other uh, Daikaiju uh, media news, SRS Cinema, fresh off of releasing Rego and the upcoming Raiga, God of the Monsters, uh, have released two new indie Daikaiju releases. The first, unsurprisingly, is God Raiga versus King Oga, the third film in Hayashiya's trilogy, and the follow-on from uh, Raiga. Uh, Now, similar to the other two, this will be available in several formats uh, with a limited edition Blu-ray and VHS releases straight from SRS. Now, no word yet on a DVD release, but I'm hopeful that after the last two films went that route, we will hear something similar for this one. Uh, Of course, those pre-ordering the Blu-ray VHS combo from SRS's website also get a beautiful piece of Matt, Frank, and Jeff Zorno artwork almost worth the price of admission alone. The second film is Attack of the Giant Teacher, which is actually a daikaiju comedy from last year about a school teacher forced to battle an alien monster. It's similar to God Raiga vs. King Oga. Right now this is available for pre-sale on Blu-ray or VHS with a special edition poster to those who order the combo pack. I'm really hoping that both of these will be available wide on DVD, much like Rago and Raiga are, well, Rago is, as I'm recording this, uh, Raiga has not actually come out yet, but it does have a release date. Looking forward to checking them out for sure. Now, Toy Fair was this past weekend as I'm recording this, and there was plenty of Godzilla-related stuff out there. Now, there's a few I want to specifically mention. One is that NECA had two new Godzillas that they were showing off, specifically Godzilla 1989 from Godzilla vs. Biollante, and 2003 from Tokyo SOS. Now, these are on target to be released later this year. They will be in the now-common poster-style box with the gatefold uh, window, which uh, you've probably seen if you've seen any of NECA's uh, later releases. Uh, 89 is a hugely popular design, one of the most beloved of the Heisei era. Uh, frankly, this release makes me glad I had not gotten that Godzilla 94 from Space Console, which is out now. As um, Of the two, I'd rather have 89. 2003 though, it might seem like an odd choice, but I I like this choice as the Tokyo SOS version has the scar on his chest from the wound suffered at the end of GXMG. So it'll be a nice toyetic touch and it'll help differentiate him on the shelf. Now, usually NECA toys can be found in Target and Walmart in their electronics sections for some reason with the other collector-aimed toys. So keep your eyes peeled if these sound appealing to you. Also at Toy Fair... Funko revealed a new game called Godzilla Tokyo Clash, which is a two to four player city smashing game featuring large-scale pieces of both monsters and buildings. Now, the description of the game is a little vague, but it says the game lets you play as Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, or oddly enough, Megalon, as you build and destroy a different city each time using modular tiles and 13 sculpted buildings. Now this one sounds like it could be a lot of fun, it's due in August. Hopefully we'll get some more pictures and information as we uh, get closer to that date. Real quick want to mention a project that's been floating around. If you've been on uh, Twitter you've probably seen this one. Uh, but those of you who've read any of uh, John LeMay's Lost Daikaiju books, or Lost Tokusatsu books I should say are probably familiar with that William Dozier wrote a treatment for Batman Meets Godzilla all the way back I want to say like 1967 or something like that. Well, that treatment, of course, never got turned into a film, but it is now becoming a comic book. So if you head to BatmanMeetsGodzilla.com, a group of fans have gotten together to adapt that treatment into a comic book. And if you go there now, um, issue number one is available. This is a uh, an online web comic, so you can download it. I'm thinking CBR or PDF. I know you can get it in CBR. Uh, so please go check that out. I've, not had, uh, I've been hearing a lot about this. I'm very uh, eager to read this. As I'm recording this, it's just got released, so I haven't even had a chance to read it. It's on my tablet to read. So very much looking forward to that. So please go check that out. And finally, hat tip to my brother Jason for passing along info about the upcoming Monopoly Godzilla from Hasbro, uh, built on the classic property buying game. Uh, this version features locations such as Monster Island, and Kitakama Lake, on which you build facilities, which are houses, and bases, which are hotels. The playing pieces are custom-sculpted tokens of Toho Dai Kaiju, including uh, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Mechagodzilla, Rodan, and Manila. Uh, there is also a Godzilla-themed set of Jenga coming from Hasbro, where the bricks are made to look like a skyscraper that Godzilla is knocking down. Uh, these look like a lot of fun. I'm not really sure about the theme for Jenga. Uh, Godzilla doesn't take out individual slices of a building when he knocks it down, at least not that I've ever seen. Uh, but my my wife and my kids are big fans of Monopoly, so I may end up with this Godzilla Monopoly just uh, to go with the the several other versions of Monopoly already in my house. These should be out around the summer, so keep an eye out for this. And Hasbro, they, they may be available um, wide. I don't know that for sure, but Uh, A lot of these themed Hasbro sets usually at least are somewhat out there. So, uh, that's all the news I have. If you have any interesting tidbits of news, go ahead and send it in. Directive at Yahoo.com. And uh, I'll give you credit here on the show when we pass it along. Alright, I'm going to take a quick break and we will be right back with Godzilla, Planet of the Monsters. You like cheap
1: comic books, right? The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes.
0: I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction directive. Gojira Kaiju Wakusei, also known as Godzilla, Planet of the Monsters, was released in theaters in Japan on November 17, 2017. After its theatrical run completed, the film was released worldwide via the streaming service Netflix on January 17, 2018, where it is still available. Our writer is Gen Urobuchi. The animation is by Polygon Pictures. Our producer is Takashi Yoshizawa, and our directors are Koban Shizuno and Hiroyuki Sashida, and our synopsis today comes from Wikipedia. In the last summer of the 20th century, giant monsters begin plaguing Earth, and humanity is driven to near extinction by one monster which eliminates the others, Godzilla. Two alien races with ulterior motives, the religious Exif and the technologically advanced Bilusaldo come to Earth and offer their assistance against Godzilla. After the Bilusaldo's uh, gambit with Mechagodzilla fails before it can even be activated, both the aliens and humanity are forced to abandon Earth and emigrate to Tau E via the spaceship Aratrum. The ship is now 11.9 light years away, and the Aratrum contains the remaining humans accompanied by Exif and Bilusaldo refugees. Captain Haru Sakaki bears a seething hatred towards Godzilla, which killed his parents during the exodus from Earth. He believes the planet selected for colonization, Tau-E, is uninhabitable and tries to force the ship's committee to rescind the order to send the elderly, including his grandfather, to scout the planet. Haru is is arrested and then witnesses the exploratory shuttle explode while entering the planet's atmosphere. He then anonymously publishes a classified essay on Godzilla's weak points, provided by the Exif priest named Metaphys. This sways public opinion among the population, forcing the Central Committee into returning to Earth after deciding they are unlikely to find another habitable world. The Aretrim arrives in Earth orbit and sends reconnaissance drones to scout the surface, which reveal that Godzilla is still alive. Metaphys arranges Haru's bail, and he explains to the committee that Godzilla has a vulnerability. It is an electromagnetic, pulse-producing organ in its body, which generates an asymmetrical, permeable shield, making it impervious to all damage except for a short period when the organ recycles. Haru proposes using that window to crack the shield organ and quickly implant an EMP probe into Godzilla, causing an implosion from the resulting energy buildup. He stresses that close-quarters combat would be needed to accurately coordinated attacks in order to find the organ and request a force of 600 people to implement this plan. When Haro and the two battalions reach Earth's surface, they learn that almost 20,000 Earth years have elapsed due to the relativist effects of traveling faster in light. Also, Godzilla's presence on the planet has radically altered Earth's biosphere. They suffer losses and damage to their landing ships by flying creatures called Servants. The remaining troops mobilize and soon encounter Godzilla. Haru proceeds with the original plan on his own and attacks Godzilla before Leyland, the commander, intervenes and provokes Godzilla. His death allowing the others to learn that Godzilla's weak point is in its dorsal fins. Command falls to Metaphys who promotes Haru to commander as a human convinces the remaining survivors to continue with the plan to defeat Godzilla. The group manage to trap Godzilla within a collapsed mountain pass where they succeed in killing the monster. However, the monster they fought appears only to be an offspring, and the original Godzilla, Godzilla Earth, which has grown exponentially to 300 meters in height, emerges from beneath a nearby mountain and destroys almost all of the remaining crew. Trapped beneath the rubble, Haru watches Godzilla leave while vowing to kill it before losing consciousness. In a post credit scene, Haro wakes up in a secluded area and sees an indigenous girl standing next to him. Who, boy, uh, like, uh, like it seems all of the movies of the Riwa era, whether they're American or Japanese, Planet of the Monsters was a polarizing affair for the Godzilla fandom. Uh, sitting down with it now, a few years after its release, how does it hold up? Well, I tell you what, let's get into the notes and find out together. The film starts fast, right out of the gate with Haru holding himself up in a docked shuttle to hold the colonization plan hostage, essentially. Now, we have no real context here. It throws us into the deep end as to the conflicts and uh, what's going on. I like the opening for that reason. It gets right into the thrust of the story, which is Haru's personal turmoil and anger. Then it pulls the rug out from under us when we see the shuttle with his grandfather and the other uh, reconnaissance team explode, killing them all. Uh, you know, I remember Henry G. Saperstein said that back in the in uh, the '60s that a lot of times these uh, Japanese monster movies they they start slow and they want to explain things, and that's why Monster Zero starts with action, starts with the ship, and it's kind of the same idea here: starting off, uh, you know, with some with some action, throwing us in, getting the story started, and then filling in the details. Uh, now that flashback that we get does give us a setup, and I have to say this sequence. Brings a smile to my face. Now, not only the obvious because of the use of some classic Toho Dai Kaiju, we get cameos from Kamakuras, Dogara, Degara, or Orga, Angurus, and Rodan, plus a mention of Hedra. I never thought we would get a cameo from Dogara or Dagara. Dogara from, of course, uh, his self-titled movie, and Dagara from Rebirth of Mothra 2, uh Two daikaiju that are not, let's just say, not very popular. Uh, but this flashback also puts the medium to good use. It gives us large-scale scenes and science fiction production design, which would have been costly and potentially less than stellar in live action, let's say. But it's easily portrayed in anime. Anime can be used to present the real world. We've seen that plenty of times in plenty of different shows. But given that this is an anime version of a tokusatsu property, I like the production team taking advantage of that freedom to show us uh, fantastical and science fiction type of environments and uh, production design. Flashback also introduces us to the two alien races who will play a role, although one more so than the other in this particular film, the Exif and the Blue Saldo. The Exif, unsurprisingly given their name, strike me as a riff on the Exians with their culture, and in fact their religion, seemingly based around technology. Their future-predicting technology, the Gematron, is even referred to as, quote, the gods, of course, by Metaphys, bringing me back to the controller from Planet X and his faith in the computers way back again in Monster Zero. The Bilusaldo, of course, are straight riffs on the black hole third planet aliens, right down to their home world being sucked into a black hole and building a Mechagodzilla. That's kind of their thing now we don't get much of them here but they will play a role in the later installments in this anime trilogy now the setup provided by the flashback is unique among the godzilla series in that it fully embraces that science fiction premise having our human characters literally abandon the earth meaning that our story starts in Meteor res with godzilla already having one the first time that i watched planet of the monsters i was immediately sucked in by this concept and by Haru's drive to reclaim the Earth for humanity. I thought this raises all sorts of questions, especially as a Daikaiju fan. Firstly, is, do the humans deserve to lay claim to the Earth? Planet Earth was around billions of years with a B before mankind arrived. Who's to say that Earth doesn't belong to the natural world? Of course, one could also ask, does Godzilla and the other kaiju count as the, air quotes up to the mic, natural world? Or is Godzilla something unnatural as well? The conceit that sometimes the Earth belches up these horrors to knock humanity down a few pegs is taken to the extreme here, with Metaphys even proclaiming that Godzilla is the quote, "punishing iron hammer for the arrogant." So it's a lot of food for thought in this, in you know, just in the the uh, just the setup and the, the 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 basic structure of the plot and the character motivation. Back on AeroTrum, the reality of being confined to a ship for something like 22 years is presented in a very deadpan, matter-of-fact manner, with food rationing and widespread resentment among the uh, among the crew, uh, creating a perfect breeding ground for Haru's idea about to return to Earth and defeat Godzilla. While I'm not surprised when a Japanese film presents suffering without shying away from it, I do have to wonder whether we are supposed to support Haru or not. Now traditionally, in a Showa setting, for instance, I would have thought that we, the audience, were being led to think that Haru was acting irrationally, thinking with his emotions rather than reason, and not respecting the council. But today, given the groundwork laid in Shin Godzilla, I suspect the message here is one of support, of breaking away, from old patterns of behavior just because they're what we've always done. In its own way, Planet of Monsters is subversive and anti-authoritarian, just like Shin Godzilla, just with a fantastical setting rather than a more realistic one like we saw in the live-action film. When the plan is enacted to return to Earth, there's a little story beat where some of the younger generation, those who are, uh, have never seen Earth and have no memories of it, are talking. One expresses hope to actually see an ocean. Now, of course, given the rationing of water on board, the idea of a seemingly endless amount of water must seem like some sort of a fantasy. Now, similarly, when they do arrive back at Earth, one crew member exclaims, hey, it's really blue. An expression of simple wonder about the planet which most of us just take for granted. I really like that. And when Aerotrom arrives at the planet, we discover that due to the relativistic effect of faster-than-light travel, time has moved forward thousands of years on Earth. The actual mathematics involved and just why it would be the case, they're beyond me, I'll be honest. But I do want to mention this because I remember good friend of the show and all-around cool dude Gene Hendricks making note of this and being happy that some attention was being played to the vagaries of space-time. <laughs> so, shout out to Gene. This also builds tension for the next scene, uh, as Aratrum's probes are dispatched, and they find that Godzilla, after all this time, still lives. Now, the reveal here with the atomic breath and the roar without actually seeing Godzilla, I, I think it's very well done, demonstrating again Godzilla's permanence as a character, with definable traits, no matter how much he may change his look or personality. Another touch here is a discussion of Godzilla's regenerative abilities, which always, of course, brings me back to Godzilla 2000 and Organizer G1. Now, I, I maybe, maybe I'm overthinking this, but to me, it's like Godzilla always has had that. That movie was the only one that shined a light on it, though. On the planet's surface, Earth has changed drastically in the nearly 20,000 years that humans have been absent. The strange razor sharp flora which has sprouted up thanks to the ecosystem adapting to Soup Godzilla reminded me of the strange flora which live on infant islands, such as the vampire plant, you know, a natural adaptation to the radiation which ravaged the island. This also gives Haru more fuel for his personal fire, specifically addressing Earth as Mother Earth and talking about how justice, faith, pride, and dignity that was lost in the retreat from Earth. I have to ask, is Harrow the Arrogant that the divine world will punish, to which Metaphys was referring earlier? It looks that way to me, but the film is content to let us make that decision for ourselves at this stage, not really leading one way or the other. The attack of the Servums is brutal and comes out of nowhere. The scene itself, with the beasts swarming over the well-armed space soldiers, really struck a Warhammer 40k vibe with me, if anyone out there is familiar with that sci-fi war game, sort of a Tyranids versus Imperial Guard situation. Thematically, I liken the Servum to the classic Mega Neuron from Rodan. But oddly enough, just, just from a timing standpoint, also the Bonefish from Rego, which we covered last episode. They're These monsters, they're small, they're a threat, but they're heralds of an even greater peril. A classic daikaiju trope, well executed in a somewhat subtle way here. The Servum themselves are a fairly straightforward design, the most interesting aspect to me being their long, dragon-like necks and spiky ankylosaurus-style tail. They certainly look menacing in a swarm, similar to the Meganula swarm from uh, Godzilla X Megaguirus, again putting the anime medium to good use, having a a bunch of them all attacking at once. Now from this point, the film shifts tones a little bit into something of a science fiction war picture, with Haro put in charge of the operation and leading this multi-pronged assault on Godzilla. The different phases of the attack with the hoverbikes strafing Godzilla to lure him into a trap in the valley, followed by the artillery pounding him to open the EM shield just enough to destroy the organ, and the mech suits ramming the electromagnetic probes through the hole, is one of those movie plots which is so outrageous that it just might work. It's exciting and fast-paced in the best anime tradition, even if uh, there is at least one instance of reused animation on the hoverbike scene of course, reused animation is itself something of an anime tradition anyway, so maybe it's on purpose. The action just it just builds and builds and builds with each new twist to the story you know, or the obstacles that get in their way. Uh, like when Godzilla's not moving in the direction fast enough and the hover bikes are starting to run out of fuel, they, they use the landing ships to create a path which forces Godzilla into the, the valley the Tenzella Pass. These these twists and obstacles, they build more tension uh, with the action, the rising action here. Now, when they finally do destroy the organ, only to have it regenerate in a matter of seconds, it seems like all is lost, even on all this for nothing. But of course, the heroic effort of Haru turns the tide. And the humans have defeated Godzilla and reclaimed the Earth, with nothing bad ever coming to take this victory away from them. Yeah, not so much. (laughs) Now, with Godzilla, again, air quotes up to the mic, defeated, the movie pulls its biggest, and I do mean biggest, trick out of its sleeve with the reveal of Godzilla Earth, the real Godzilla, an epic, oh bleep moment for the Godzilla series. Once more, pulling the rug out from under the audience, as well as the, the the, uh, the actual characters in the movie, uh, you know, we as the audience, we just watched Haru and company give every ounce of effort to defeat this seemingly unbeatable monster, only for the real Godzilla to show himself as a completely unstoppable force. Again, this is the iron hammer of the arrogant. Haru thinks that he has defeated Godzilla and reclaimed Earth, despite all the warnings from the scientists that the Godzilla they were fighting might not be the same one from when they left the Earth. But Heru arrogantly ignores those warnings, seeks vengeance, and seems to get it, only to be once more put in his place, more forcefully than ever before. This entire sequence reminds me of Behemoth, and especially Leviathan from the Book of Job, as Godzilla demonstrates that man has little chance to intervene in or to impact the realm of the divine. Now, admittedly, that's a Western sort of reading, but I think it fits nicely. The scale of this scene speaks to that as well. I may have gotten in hot water with a few listeners for once saying that giant monsters are as tall as they need to be, but here, Godzilla Earth is rightfully gigantic, clocking in at a whopping 300 meters or roughly 1,000 feet tall, which is just incredible. From a fan standpoint, this entire sequence, it's a giant catharsis. Godzilla has been an adversary or an obstacle for this entire film not being shown to really have much agency other than that of a giant animal. And he's struck down by man's technology. Now, albeit at great cost and certainly in a hard-fought manner. But just as we wrap our hands around the fact that Godzilla has been defeated, all of that is thrown out the window. And the role of the kaiju as being dominant over man has been firmly reestablished. And Godzilla Earth is just such... I mean, he's only on screen for a few minutes, but... The, the giant oscillatory wave that his beam creates that wipes out everything, and then slamming his tail down like a tail whip that creates a shock wave. These are just incredible visuals. Again, putting that anime medium to good use because those scenes may have worked or may not have worked with the scale of that suit and the models that you'd need to do to do it in live action, but in anime, it's easy to do that scale, and they, they do a great job of it. Now, our brief post credit scene that's really an intrigue. What kind of human could have evolved on Earth over the last 20 centuries? No hints here, just tease, which is fine by me. You know, since we knew that this was going to be uh, part of a trilogy when it was released on Netflix, I don't have a problem with a little ending like this. Um, overall, I enjoy Planet of the Monsters, even if I can acknowledge its faults and understand why it completely turned off some viewers. I like that the film is different, telling a unique story in the Godzilla series. And, you know, that's kind of hard to do for a series that's been along as long as Godzilla has. And it makes good use of the freedom that the animation allows the filmmakers to have. Now, it is definitely a film of two halves, with a lot of talk in the front end and more action loaded in the back half. And Godzilla plays really a fairly small role from a character standpoint, even if, Uh, The offspring Godzilla and then the true Godzilla loom large over the entire running time. Now, as I said, this was, of course, conceived as part of a trilogy. And given that, one can forgive the nature of the ending, uh, as that sort of sequel hook has become very common in genre filmmaking over the last couple of decades. And, you know, again, when we know it's going to be a a sequel, it's kind of that to expect that sequel setup. And I, I much prefer this type of sequel setup where it's absolutely just pulling the rug out. And it's not just, oh, the villain escapes and they'll be back. Whereas here, we tell a story and then, oh, snap, the uh, the story just changed. Now, please don't misunderstand me. This movie is not perfect by any stretch. Uh, it does have its flaws, some of which are, you know, it, it, it can be a little slow-paced despite the fact that it's only about 90 minutes. But, you know, and, and there are, again, some instances of, of reused animation. And the animation itself is subjective. I like it, but I know some people don't. That one... Good, bad animation. I don't know that I want to get into that particular argument because there is, that is such a subjective realm. Um, we've seen on social media over the last couple of years, people just going, you know, tooth and claw at each other over different animation styles. I'm not even going to touch that, but, um, you know, I have to say, looking at it honestly, two years or so after it was unleashed on the world, planet of the monsters holds up as a strong, well-conceived entry in this series. I'm I'm glad I got to cover it, and I'm eager to watch the next ones to cover them eventually, too. Now, if you want to watch Planet of the Monsters, chances are your country has it on Netflix, as it was, as I said, a huge worldwide release for the streaming service. Now, there is a Blu-ray and DVD release. These are Region A and 2, respectively, but what I do want to say these are for the Japanese market, and thus do not include any other languages other than Japanese, including the subtitles. Now, if you can speak Japanese or read Japanese, you're good to go. Otherwise, we wait patiently for Toho to grant us a physical media release for the other markets. Uh, I would love to see a box set of all three of them. That would be something. Um, so that's, uh, but again, if, if again, most places where you're probably hearing this show, your uh, con- Netflix has it streaming in your country, most likely. I mean, the list on Wikizilla of the different languages this was available in and the different subtitles were available was it was just astounding it was I mean it was it was it was a very comprehensive list all right so what say you did you like Planet of the monsters did you uh, enjoy it did you were you disappointed by it do you think it's the worst Godzilla movie ever I've, I've heard all those uh, opinions online uh write me in earthdestructiondirective destruction directive at yahoo.com we can talk about it here I'd love to talk about these you know it's funny that Godzilla 14. And Shin Godzilla and King of the Monsters, they get so much digital ink spilled about them. Good, bad, otherwise. Whereas, you know, the anime ones don't seem to get as much attention. They're a little bit forgotten. I think because they were anime, some people look down on them a little bit and say, well, they're not really Godzilla. But they are. I mean, they're Toho and they're, they're a Godzilla movie. So they're part of the series, too. So I'm really interested to hear what people think about this. Please send me an email, Directive at yahoo.com. We'll talk about it here on the show. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hi, folks. My name is Reginald Francis Winterborne Smythe III, President and CEO of Biscuit Basket Consolidated Brands Incorporated. When my granddaddy, Reginald Francis Winterbourne Smythe I, founded Biscuit Basket back in 1937, his mission was to provide hardworking families with good food at a good value. Today, here at Biscuit Basket, we continue to strive to make our biscuits, fixins', and entrees the best value in town for our customers and to bring families together around the dinner table. And we always put the biscuit in the basket. Remember, if you love your family, y'all will take them to Biscuit Basket just off State Road 23 on the Frontage Road and tell them Reginald sent you. Biscuit Basket Consolidated Brands Incorporated is not liable for biscuits delivered outside of baskets. Women who are pregnant, may become pregnant, or have been pregnant, should not eat a biscuit basket. Do not operate heavy machinery for at least four hours after eating a biscuit basket. Customers order of the biscuit basket down home country fees must meet minimum health qualifications and sign a waiver indemnifying Biscuit Basket Consolidated Brands Incorporated against all damages. The price is slightly higher in Missouri. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Solo Avengers number 15 was cover dated February 1989, released on or about October 11th, 1988. Uh, this information, of course, comes from Mike's amazing world of comics, which you can find at dcindexes.com. Our cover is by Tom Artis with Joseph Rubenstein on inks. And um, it's uh, this, this being a cover of Solo Avengers is actually uh, two kind of stories going on in the cover. Uh, the one that we're concerned about is the inset. So we just see a little bit, a little triangle at the bottom uh, with the Wasp flying in front of uh, the Red Ronin. And it has some great copy. It says, The Wasp versus Red Ronin. And uh, our writer the, for this segment, because I'm only covering the, uh, the segment with the Wasp, I'm not going to cover the, uh, the uh, Hawkeye and uh, Black Widow story, fighting the awesome android, which is the uh, the lead. But the writer for this segment is Fabian Nasiza, also known, of course, as Fabian nee and Fabian Nice-Easy. And if you know those, you read Nomad back in the 90s like I did. Pencils are by Tom Morgan. The inker is Mark McKenna. Our letterer is Mikey Heisler. Colorist is Paul Beckton. There is no editor listed, but the editor for the other story was Mark Gruenwald. So I'm going to assume that Gruenwald did the editing for this segment as well. The title of our story is Ronin on Empty. Ronin on, Ronin on empty, Ronin on, Ronin fine. It's like we're in Forrest Gump. And the synopsis is adapted from myself. At an electronics trade show in the Silverdome in Pontiac, Michigan, site of WrestleMania 3, Stain International is displaying Red Ronin, whom they somehow came into possession of after he went berserk during the event's of Avengers 198 and 199, and have reprogrammed him for civilian work. When a disgruntled former Stain employee, Joe Kilman, slips a new piece of code into Red Ronin, the incomplete robot tears its way out of its scaffold and out of the Silverdome. Luckily, Janet Van Dyne, in her role as president of Van Dyne Industries, is also at the trade show. And so, the Winsome Wasp is pressed into service against Red Ronan once again. Guided by Stain Engineer and would-be suitor Karaguchi Inoyaiwa, Wasp infiltrates inside of Red Ronin and manages to shut him down before he can do too much damage beyond crushing numerous cars in the parking lot, including Janet's own Jaguar. With Red Ronin incapacitated, Karaguchi again plies for a date with the glamorous hero, but again Janet shuts him down. Very light and fun story this time out, befitting a backup feature. Uh, featuring a character as bouncy as the Wasp. So let's get right into the notes. Now, I've always had a soft spot for the Wasp in the pages of Avengers, even if she wasn't always portrayed the best, uh, usually being flighty or somewhat catty. I was introduced to her actually during the tail end of Avengers Volume 1, right around issue 400, when she was like in the monstrous Wasp form. And she didn't really have, I don't remember her having much to do. I remember thinking she looked cool. But, you know, I was like 13 also, so what do I know? I don't remember Wasp playing a role in the Heroes Reborn era, but then in the Heroes Return, she was around for a little bit in that, and I remember Jeff Johns used her in Avengers um, when he started taking that over, and there was some stuff with her and Hank around the time of Secret Invasion that I, I remember, and... In the interim in that, I had also started reading Avengers in the essential form. So I was getting the very early Silver Age stuff, and she factors into a lot of that. And again, that's where a lot of her portrayal is, ooh, isn't Thor cute? You know, that kind of stuff, which is is not the best. But a lot of the Marvel girls, and I say girls because they're called girls all the time in those books. A lot of the Marvel ladies from that era don't always fare the best, and Wasp is, is no different. But I've always had a, a soft spot for I I like shrinking heroes because... They have to use their wits. Uh, they can't overpower people. And the wasp with her wings and her Bioblast uh, wasp sting, uh, I always thought, was a, was a neat character for that reason. She gets to do some creative stuff. Now, I've really started to dig Janet, I have to say, over the last few years due to her role in Dan Slott's Tony Stark Iron Man book, uh, which recently ended and has continued into the current Iron Man 2020 miniseries and event now. In, in that title, Janet is Tony's love interest, but they're presented as two equals, which I really like, And that the idea that both of them have had really strange lives and they know each other really well, and this is a good chance for the two of them to maybe ha- be happy and have a few laughs together, but she's not a damsel in distress. Uh, Janet is portrayed as a seasoned Avenger, of course a glamorous socialite. And a very devoted and caring friend. You get the feeling that she really cares about Tony's well-being. And, um, you know, and, and she's not just a pretty piece of arm candy. I really like that. Now, I know Marvel has pushed the new Wasp, who's, um, uh, Hank Pym's daughter over the last few years. It was, uh, Wasp and the Agents of Girl or something, um, or Unstoppable Wasp, I think was the name of the book. But if I'm speaking for myself, I would really like to see a Janet Van Dyne, the Wasp book. As a counterpart to Tony Stark Iron Man where Tony plays the role of her love interest and we get to see all the goings on at Van Dyne Industries and her uh, you know, going out on the town and doing her socialite stuff in between bouts of uh, fighting supervillains as the Wasp. So uh, the cover to the issue, as I said, it's dominated by the lead story of Hawkeye and Black Widow being symbolically menaced by the new awesome android in front of a fairly plain green background. A small triangle at the bottom third of the cover shows Wasp wearing a version of the costumes from this issue. It's uh, it's missing the shoes and fishnets that she'd wear in the issue. We'll talk about her costume a little bit um, in, in, in a few minutes. Uh, flying in the face of Red Ronin. Red is shown all in crimson with black highlights. Frankly, this is not exactly an inspiring cover for either story. As I said, the best part is the copy. Um, cause it does say The Wasp versus Red Ronin with a question mark and an exclamation point as if they can't even believe that The Wasp is gonna fight Red Ronin on her own. Uh, but, uh, yeah, not, not a great cover, unfortunately. I, there's not a, I don't really remember any really great standout covers from Solo Avengers. But again, this title was a, was before my time really at Marvel, so I don't remember it contemporaneously. But you, I, even when I come across them, they're, they're usually not as, uh, uh, it's not as action-heavy as, I'm thinking, like Marvel Team-Up or Marvel 2-in-1, which usually had a fairly dynamic cover. Um, now, starting on page 17, which is where the story starts, um, we see Kilman, uh, the guy that puts the code in the Red Dornan, wearing a Cord Incorporated button. Now, I always thought it was Cord Co. was the name of the company that Janice, Cord, uh, Janice Cord's dad owned and uh, was an ongoing concern in, in Iron Man. Now, as a splash page goes, it's is pretty low-key. It appears that Red Ronin is eating Inoyawa, but why would Red Ronin be eating someone? He's a robot. So, again, it's it's fairly low-key for a splash page. You know, over on uh, page 18, working the desk at Van Dyne Industries, Janet is sporting a stylish, pale green suit with a yellow blouse and a bolo tie. Uh, I thought it's, um, you know, again, for a character known for her fashion, I do like they put a little bit of effort into what she's wearing. Uh, panel three on that page shows her shrinking down with three silhouettes of her getting smaller and smaller and smaller until she's wearing her business outfit, but with her wings sticking out. A very nice classic touch. Uh, I like this panel a lot. I do like that style. It always reminds me of, like, how Carmine Infantino would show the Flash, and you just see the the individual silhouettes. But here, with the shrinking and growing, they used to do this with the Wasp and with uh, with Hank. Uh, whether he was Ant Man or Giant Man back in the day in the Avengers as well. Um, over now onto uh, page 19, we get flashbacks to that story from Avengers um, 198 199. It's a good three panel flashback, even though the panels are fairly small. It does show a few scenes. It shows Iron Man using the power overload attack, which was the cliffhanger, towards cliffhanger of 198, and then the Avengers using Red Ronin's own, own sword against him which was part of the climax in uh, 199. Now, what is not explained, at least not that I saw, was how stain had any jurisdiction to salvage Red Ronin. Now, personally speaking, I don't know if it works like maritime salvage, and whoever gets to the wreck first has salvage rights. I've read enough Clive Cussler, who... uh, As uh, as of this recording, just recently passed away, so uh, sorry to hear about that. But I've read enough Cuss to know that that's kind of how maritime salvage works. So for the purposes of this discussion, we'll assume that and move on. Now, Inuyawa then asked if Janet wants to discuss Red Ronin over dinner, and ugh, just ugh. Understand that Janet's a well-known socialite who makes the papers every time she goes out into town, but this is just cheesy, borderline sleazy. Now, page 20, panel one, Janet reverts to full size using the silhouette trick again in reverse. And as Janet and Kilman, who both were on the top of the scaffold, ride down the elevator, their thoughts flung parallel to each other. So Janet thinks, hmm, a little stuck up, eh? The hammer on the head method doesn't work with this girl. And Kilman says, hmm, that stuck up little weasel, his overbearing nature will be the end of him. Janet says, still, he is kind of cute. And Kelman thinks, still, he does have a lot of fins." Uh, Janet says, oh, Jan, don't do it, don't do it. Kelman thinks, what if I fail? Oh, do it, do it. And then uh, they, they go their separate ways, and uh, Kelman thinks, it's time for Joe Kelman to become a big fish in this pond. And Janet thinks, I wonder if he likes sushi. Uh, Janet, unfortunately, displays the, that she still has really questionable taste in men mulling over whether she should go out with Eno Yawa, thinking he is kind of cute. Now, this flighty personality for Janet was just part of her from the start, as I said, back in the Silver Age. In a cutesy backup story, I don't mind it so much, but I prefer when this trait is de-emphasized. That's just me. I mean, it was funny when she would fawn over Thor, like I said, but that was 1964. Here in 1988, it wouldn't fly in in a more serious, less goofy story. Over now on page 22, as Janet uses a bio blast to knock a, mo- a mooring rope into the falling scaffolding and redirect it uh, away from the attendees when um, Red Ronin starts breaking out of the uh, of, of his scaffolding. Um, Janet thinks that she thought, quote, this only worked in the comics or in bad Roger Moore movies. So clearly in Nacisa, not a fan of Roger Moore's James Bond work. Although by this time, Roger Moore hadn't been 007 for some time. Timothy Dalton had taken over the role in uh, 1987's Living Daylights, and he would soon reprise it in uh, 1989's License to Kill. So, yeah, I guess, I guess again, it's uh, whether you like Moore or not is a uh, personal choice. Now, panel six on this uh, page has a very strange perspective shot of Red Ronan. He almost looks like he's like cylindrical in shape. Uh, the issue with this panel is that up until this point in the story, we did not know that Red Ronin does not have his legs. So the art is very confused until later when that point is revealed. I mean, it's just kind of an odd look because there's just this big hand in the foreground. and You can't really see his head very well. It's, it's not, a, not a very clear panel. Over onto page 25, uh, panel 2, uh, Janet is removing her business suit to reveal her adventuring costume while Inuyama is uh, going on about uh, what they need to do to get him, uh to, to override the program, he loses his train of thought and just goes, mm. and then he adds that he can't believe that he's playing with a computer while Janet takes her clothes off in front of him. Ugh, once again. Now, to her credit, Janet is about to read him the riot act, but Inuyama quickly changes course to discuss Fred Ronan again. Now. I cannot imagine this joke going over well in 2020. I'm going to leave it at that. Now, we do see Janet's costume fully on this page. It's an orange one-piece with a single shoulder strap on the right and a little white ringer fringe on the neck. Now, this is paired with a pair of black fishnet stockings and orange, um, look like ballet slipper shoes. The one-piece also has a very nice W monogrammed on the shoulder. It's not a bad costume, but to be honest, I preferred the blue and white number she sported in those Avengers issues with Red Ronan. Of course, Wasp's costumes are always something of a crapshoot. She also has quite big hair in this uh, sequence. Again, Janet's hairstyle was rarely static. On to page 27, as Red Ronan makes his way through the parking lot, he crushes numerous cars, including Janet's medium red Jaguar, leading the heroine to shout, THAT DOES IT! Now, her face in panel three... Very cartoony, almost childlike in its depiction. Morgan is leaning heavily on the cartooning here, especially with Janet's facial reactions in the back half of this story. I always think of uh, um, um, Dave Sim in Gladiator talking about Stan Drake and the use of the, the, the broad facial expressions in the comic strips and um, that it was a, a take from, from a cartooning background or a cartooning touch which led to, uh, you know, kind of really easily portraying the emotions of the characters. And I think that's kind of what Morgan's going for here. On page 29, panel 3, the Wasp tricks um, a defense mechanism inside of Red Ronin. It's after she she gets herself inside of him, flying into uh, uh, underneath where his, I guess, underneath his skirt, where his leg would attach. Uh, She gets sprayed with fire-retardant foam leading to an absolutely great scowled reaction of irritation on her face as she's, uh, her lips are pursed, and she's very angry, and you can tell. Uh, Now, this is followed up in panel four with a very dynamic hero shot of her tearing apart a piece of circuitry off of the interior red ronin. The panel has a sort of Alan Davis quality to it with the fluidity. Uh, Unfortunately, it is a bit undermined by her very pointy chest. I mean, I, I guess I can see kind of the physics of how that works but it's it's distracting just the way it's portrayed. But everything else on it I really like of her ripping this panel apart. On page 30, we get more great cartoon faces from Morgan, including a sequence where Wasp literally gets shot in the rear end with a laser bolt, and then her eyes wide her mouth pursed, replies, ooh, and then finally scowls again and shouts, this really burns my bum. Comics, folks. <sighs> the dialogue in this sequence as Inuyama warns of the perils Janet shall face, is incredibly over the top. But you know, Inoyama a, in a actually acknowledges it. He says uh, Ronin's at his most vulnerable right now and his most dangerous. His actions will be beyond the limits of your imagination. Expect the unexpected. A whole new universe of danger awaits you. Do I sound ominous enough? And that's right, when Janet gets shot in the in the in the rear end. Uh, now, further on down the page, panel six, another great hero shot of the wasp as she is zipping through slamming blast doors and soaring with uh, her her left hand uh, up in the air, her legs underneath her, her wings pointed down. She looks really great. This this pose would make a great uh, like hero poster or something like that for, for the wasp. Uh, that's nicely juxtaposed with panel seven where we see her from behind in a very far shot grabbing her head in frustration. at The classic, oh, no, pose, as she sees uh, a dozen different wires that she has to decipher. Uh, Inoyama says, uh, uh, she says this is the central wiring outlet. Janet says, which one do I unplug? Inoyama says, the red one. Janet says, they're all red. So I can, uh, I, I, can, I can feel her frustration there. On to page uh, 31, which is the last uh, page of the story, panels two and three, one more set of cartoony panels as uh, Janet pulls out the wire. Panel 3, uh, as she has got both her hands wrapped on the wire, her feet up on the uh, uh, the terminal that they're connected to, and she is pulling back with all her might, really gives me a definite Tinkerbell vibe here, intentional or otherwise. Now, panel 4, I love this. Uh, Janet hangs a lampshade in the whole shebang, as she says, I can't get over how easily Ronan was defeated compared to the last time. I guess when you've only got, you know, uh, 12 pages to work in, you gotta do things a little bit quicker than when you got two full stories. Uh, Inayama tries again to get a gate. Again, Janet is having none of it. And um, he says, uh, Janet, I'm a lover, not a fighter. The creation will always bear the mark of the creator. If you want real excitement, maybe you should take me up on that dinner proposal. And then oddly, a burp sound comes out of Red Ronin. And uh, Janet says, Seems the big galoot doesn't agree. But then again, He's too stupid to understand anything. You said it yourself. He takes after his creator, so she gets the last uh, last word in on Yama, And he's clearly unhappy. And yeah, he's not he's not going out with Janet. She wouldn't waste her time with a schmuck like this. Overall, this is definitely a light story. Nothing major, and certainly not air quotes up to the mic crucial, as we like to say sometimes. But uh, to any except the most devoted of wasp bands. Red Ronin literally could be any robot, so shout out to uh, Nasiza for using him. Uh, he doesn't, but Red Ronin doesn't get to do much in general other than roll through the countryside. Compared to the last Red Ronin story, this clearly a comedy. Now, that said, I do like the Wasp, and I like seeing her get a little spotlight, and it would be a very little spotlight because she's the Wasp, you see, she's very little. And this a script, it's breezy and silly, the art from Morgan and McKenna is suitably bouncy with great facial work, as I've mentioned, and overall makes for a fun, if ultimately forgettable, wasp adventure. Now, I would love at this time to talk about the bullpen boltons, the soapbox page, uh, Stan's soapbox, the letters, but unfortunately, I don't have this physically. I only have it digitally, so I can't talk about this. Now, uh, this issue has actually not been collected in a trade, although it is available on uh, Marvel Unlimited and Comics Ologies, if you'd like to check it out there. Also interesting, um, we talked about Thing Thirty One last time. That that book ended a few months later. Um, so, uh, Solo Avengers will not so much end as tradition as transition and change titles five m- five or six months down the road, becoming Avengers Spotlight. Uh, this was part of feedback that Marvel got from retailers that Avengers. Solo Avengers and West Coast Avengers were in three different sections of the rack. So fans had to look for them, whereas retailers said, hey, can you put all the Avengers, because we outline them up alphabetically. If we have all the Avengers titles close to each other alphabetically, they'll be easier for fans to get all three of them. So that's why it made that transition. And similarly, West Coast Avengers, of course, became Avengers West Coast. So what do you folks think? Have you read this one? Do you uh, uh, Do you enjoy seeing the Wasp as a solo heroine? Did you like her... Orange uh, adventuring costume that she wore here? Did you, uh, are there other wasp stories that you'd recommend? Other wasp solo stories that you'd recommend for for a reader like me who knows her mostly from Avengers and is really getting to enjoy the character? Send me email, Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear from you and love to hear your thoughts. We'll talk about them here in the air. All right, we'll be right back to close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive.
1: Can you hear me now, Jimmy? Excellente! I've been waiting a long time for this. What was that? (sighs) Yes, Jimmy, I'll mention you. As you always remind me, I'm contractually obligated to do so. We good? Alrighty then, let's get this promo started. Hello kaiju lovers! I'm Nathan Marchand, a professional writer and raging nerd. You might remember me from the Kaiju Vision Radio podcast. Well, during my sabbatical to the Monsterland Resort to catch some rays and drink a few blue Hawaiians, I was hired as the curator of the Monster Island Film Vault. So I figured I might as well use the opportunity to make a podcast while I'm at it. I'll critically and academically analyze films from the Kaiju and Tokusatsu genres in keeping with my philosophy of film appreciation and have fun along the way. Each episode will feature members of my rotating roster of guest hosts, chosen from Monster Island's tourists, including John LeMay, Daniel DeManna, Ben Avery, and Nick Hayden. We'll walk through kaiju film history, starting with the granddaddy of all kaiju himself, King Kong! Yes, we'll be chronologically examining the eighth wonder of the world's filmography, culminating with this epic rematch against the king of the monsters in 2020's Godzilla vs. Kong! episodes will drop the second and fourth wednesdays of every month the first episode each month will be a full-length film discussion with the tourists where i share these amazing films with both newcomers to the genre and veteran fans the second will be a mini-show on a variety of topics starting with audio essays on classic toho tokusatsu films so join me and my intrepid producer jimmy from nasa who miraculously survived the infamous war in space as we embark on a new giant monster film journey starting September 2019. Check out our website, MonsterIslandFilmVault.com, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other fine podcatchers. The Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast-seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. How was that, Jimmy? What do you mean, it stinks?
0: All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. And it is now time for a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at hurtdestructionerective You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter. Listen to the outro of the show and you'll get uh, an idea of how to get in touch with us. And we, of course, love hearing feedback from our listeners. So let's get right into it. Our first email comes from Gene Hendricks, who already got a shout-out on this episode. And Gene writes, The one with the kid. Luke, I just listened to your coverage of all Monsters Attack, which I remember seeing as a kid and not caring for. I think that's probably a combination of the dub, which, as you said, has some odd dialogue choices, and the fact that it was about a kid imagining the monsters. I do remember that it was in the rotation for those weekend afternoon movie shows, but I would skip it more often than watch it. Having watched the Japanese version as a part of TCM's Godzilla Month, I have to agree that it isn't as bad as I remember it. It certainly is a lesser entry in the franchise, but I can see its appeal to both kids and studio accountants. Having watched the other movies in order prior to this one, it was interesting to see just what was changed in the stock footage and what they had to add in order to cover certain things like a webbed up manila. The lesson of the film having to stand up for yourself Is a bit harsh for kids to learn, but it does have to be learned at some point. The lack of ladder safety was disturbing to me as well. Since I am OSHA 10-hour certified, all the tips you were giving just had me nodding my head. Amen, brother. Right there. Uh, Standing up for yourself? Good. Lack of ladder safety? Not good. Just putting it out there. Gene continues, on the Iron Man side of things, you're covering one of my earliest eras of the title. One of the first issues that I had were 197 and 198, so I was used to Rhodey being Iron Man and Tony not actually having a company. Tony putting on the gray armor in those issues was why I found the Mark II armor in the original movie to be so great. There it was, right up on the screen. The idea that it would become War Machine wasn't even in my head until Rhodes made the comment at the end of the film, Keep them stomping Gene. Of course, Gene can be found at The Hammer Strikes, Quantum Cast, anime freaks and class 1000 podcast gene thank you very much for writing in that's a really great point about the uh the mark ii suit in the original iron man movie is that it does look like the uh um the 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 therapy armor the recovery armor that tony is building in that that's a really good point of course that when the comics would sort of go on to become if i am remembering right i think that armor doesn't it get re? No. Does it get repurposed into the Silver Centurion, or at least parts of it do? It's been a while since I've read Two Hundred, but uh, but yeah, hey, um, and I hear you. Godzilla's Revenge was always on. I remember being on Super Scary Saturdays all the time, for whatever reason, and that or on the one on USA Captain Video. I remember being on there all the time. I guess because it was had kids in it, you know. I don't know, but hey, Gene, thank you very much for writing in. Um, always glad to hear from you. Like I said, Gene is a, an all-around great dude. Uh, I did a great episode with him over in the Hammer Strikes. We talked about Excalibur, of all things. Um, you know, that's about as far away from giant monsters as you can get. There's not even any dragons. But uh, Excalibur was a, was a great episode. And, um, of course, Gene and uh, Dr. Bill, his partner from Anime Freaks, they get started when we did The War in Space, which was, oh, man, that was just a great episode. I loved that episode so much. That was a lot of fun recording with Gene and with Dr. Bill. So thank you very much, Gene. Our next email comes from a good friend of the show, Jack Bond. And Jack's uh, email is entitled, If Camera is friend to all children, does that include Manila? Jack writes, Did I like Godzilla's Revenge? Yeah, about middle. That's uh, Jack's referring to my uh, when I, I surveyed my children on whether they like Godzilla's Revenge, and my youngest said middle, which is her way of saying both yes and no. Uh, in fact, Jack goes on to actually answer the questions that I asked my children. So thank you, Jack. Another member for the sample set here. Uh, Jack says, My favorite part is flaming mantis stock footage or the kid pulling out the handmade control panel and arranging a flight to Monster Island. I do love those imagination play scenes as well. My least favorite part is definitely Ichiro becoming a hooligan at the end on his way to becoming Gabra to some smaller kid. I did like the real-world segments for the most part. My favorite monster is the Kamakuras, a giant praying mantis played by a man-sized marionette. Awesome piled on top of awesome. (laughs) You know, Kamakuras is a monster I didn't really care for as a kid, but now that I'm older, I'm just struck by him all the time. It's like there's so much going into him. And when there's three of them in Son of Godzilla, there's just so much going on there. It really is something that they get that much character out of them. Uh, back to Jack's email, he says, Yeah, the pollution was really striking despite not being the focus. I popped the DVD in to check out the opening song you mentioned. The subtitles are quickly overwritten by credits and later seem to consist mostly of "e," "ga," Ge, so I probably tuned them out when I first watched the DVD. Something strange I notice as the kids are climbing the pedestrian overpass. This may be too much, quote, film analysis, but you see them alone in a world too big for them. From the time they leave school until they are almost home and meet their mothers, they don't interact with adults, as large as those are, but with cars and trucks and looming distant factory machinery. Even Ichiro's father talks to him from the engine of a train. I'm not going to justify them knocking the man on the ladder down, but I can see where the urge is coming from and breaking in here. That's a really good point, you know, I mean, given what honda has said about this film and what we talked about where he recut the ending when they had to cut it down to about 10 minutes for the film festival i think that's got to be a conscious decision that you know the kids have their this is the kids world and that's who they're it's not unique or strange to them at this point because they've been with it so long living in this urban environment this very machine you know technology heavy and that's not even the right world this very industrial area this is this is their environment and they're used to it and this is how they you know we, we see you know uh, you know we see them playing with trash basically playing each you know digging through a ruined factory to find trash to play with I mean that's uh, that this is not a pretty picture of 1969 1970 urban Japan and uh, so I think you're right on the money there Jack. Uh, Jack continues an hour or some later. Is God? No, Godzilla's Revenge is not good. It's not aimed at me, but it's not succeeding in what it tries to be either. As a division of fantasy and reality, I wouldn't put such easily defeated thieves on the reality side. I'm thinking even encountering crime would be outside the experience of most of the intended audience. If Ichiro encountered competent criminals, he is lying broken somewhere, and the rest of the movie is actually his dream. The real tragedy is that his imagination has become so limited and mundane. No, I don't want to explore that alternative. I'm thinking it should be a more everyday test of physical and moral courage. I don't know what, but something with lower stakes for Ichiro if he fails. So something one can imagine even anticipate Ichiro failing. Then I think you'd have something. Signed Jack. Well Jack Theresoff, thank you very much for writing in. Again, that's that's a, that's a great point, the idea of running into bumbling thieves, you know, decades before a home alone seems a bit outlandish, especially again, given the attitude towards crime in Japan. Um, you know, there's, it's not like in the United States, crime is not to that level in a country where one of the defining traits is cooperation. It's, um, I I think you're probably on the money that it would have been extremely rare for, for something like that to happen. And obviously you don't want, uh, um you don't want again your 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 movie ostensibly aimed at kids to have each row getting the uh, you know getting you know just his head smashed in by a by a or on I mean, that that's a bridge too far so it, it like i said the movie exists in this weird sort of space i know there's been this this big thing lately in the Godzilla community to reevaluate all monsters attack and it's really one of the best ones and it's like eh, you know to me that's a bit that's a bit trying to get clicks that's a that's a bit of uh You know, trying to, you say, too much film analysis, a little too much film analysis. I think the film is better than its reputation. I still don't think it's it's one of the better ones, even given what they're trying to do with the real world story. I mean, it's a great concept. Uh, I like the, you know, from a, their intention is good, but the execution is not necessarily there. So thank you very much, Jack, for writing in. Always a treat to hear from you. So our last episode, the Rago episode, we received social media likes, shares, and retweets from my brother Jason Giaconetti, the Telltale Mind, Coffee and Comics, Winter, Nebraskan, Alexander Sperling, Giant Monster Messages, Kyoe Toshi, Jimmy from NASA, and the worlds of Nathan Marchon. Together they are the Monster Island Film Vault, the Fan Holes Podcast, Andrew Roebuck, the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Anime Freaks. Bob Hansen Adam Tebow. Chuck Rodriguez. Louis Lacomas, a.k.a. Lomax. Derek William Crabb, Derek W.C. of the Fan Holes and History of Comics on Film. Jean Pendrix, Gene Gene the Podcasting Machine. John Vanover. Robert Ward. Tim Elliott. Colleen Alexander. Brian Severe. Paul Choate and Bro Rad, So thank you very much for the social media uh, love. Every little bit helps, and I really appreciate uh, all that you folks do to help spread the word of Earth Destruction Directive. So now we come to the time when we must not look backwards but always forwards. And what do we covering next time on Earth Destruction Directive? Well, we are going to be uh, jumping back to live action. We're jumping back to the Showa era, but we're not doing a Godzilla movie. We are going over to Dai Yi, and we're taking a look at Daimajin Strikes Again, the third and final Daimajin film. All these were, of course, released in 1966. Uh, now, on the DVD release, this is called Wrath of Daimajin, but I, I think it's not the correct title, so we're just going to say Daimajin Strikes Again, and we'll get that sorted out. Very much looking forward to that. I've really enjoyed the... The last two uh, Daimajin films uh, gave rise to a a quote that my friend Joe and I still yell at each other, you never kill the old priestess. And we'll also be taking a look at Wolverine Annual 1996, which actually features the next chronological appearance of Red Ronin. So we're going to be continuing taking a look at um, later appearances of characters from the Marvel Godzilla. Uh, And uh, so that that should be interesting. I want to give a shout-out to... um, uh, to Ron Sadowski who actually sent me that Wolverine annual a few years ago I don't know if he knew that I was going to be needing it to cover it But I appreciated it nonetheless and very much looking forward to taking a look at that and reading some 90s Wolverine as well I never read a lot of Wolverine in the 90s. Maybe uh, a couple of issues all told most of which were probably in crossovers So looking forward to checking that out uh, As always you can reach me at earthdestructiondirective at uh, yahoo.com you can hit us on Facebook, just search for uh, Luke EdD, and you can find me there. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at El Jacone, or you can use the hashtag or hashtag Earth Destruction Directive and find us there. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show. Every one of you out there is appreciated, and uh, this show would not exist without the listeners, so um, thank you very much. i also like to take, of course, this opportunity to say that this show is for everyone if you are interested in giant monsters whether you're a seasoned fan or a newbie and you're just trying to learn you are welcome here and i welcome all opinions and viewpoints may not agree with them but i welcome them so this show is for everyone so again thank you everyone for downloading listening please come back next time for dimagin strikes again and wolverine annual 1996 and until then keep them stomping All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at two twotruefreaks.com.